Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We have been doing a series on emotional and relational health. The fact is we've been doing it on emotional health. We haven't got to the relational part. We will. We're going to get to that. And the reason we're focusing on this is the Lord has just really made it clear to me that as he pours out his spirit upon us again, one of the, in order for us to sustain a move of God, in order for us to be the container that can hold, in order for us to maintain what we obtain, we've got to keep our relationships strong. If you read revival history at all, and I've been a student of revival history for decades now, one of the primary saboteurs of revival is the stress it causes for relationship and relational breakdown. And so we want to make sure that we are healthy emotionally, we are relating with ourselves in a healthy way, and therefore we can relate with others in a healthy way. You can't have a relational we until you have, I mean, a healthy we until you have a healthy me. You can't have healthy relationships if you're not healthy emotionally. And so we've been looking at this whole theme, and, and really it comes down to this. Uh, well, last week we were looking, uh, we just touched on it. We didn't have time to really get into it because I spent the whole morning on my intro and uh, realized, I prayed that God would have time still, stand still like he did in, in uh, Exodus, but it didn't work. So uh, we're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off last week. But we were talking out of the book of Genesis uh, in the garden. And we were talking specifically, at least I intended to, we just touched on it last week. I wanted to get to the whole subject of shame. Because shame is one of the primary uh, saboteurs of relationship. It's, it's how the enemy keeps us out of relationship, both with God, with ourselves, and with others. Notice what I said, with God, ourselves, and others. Those are the three primary relationships that God wants to deal with. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as what? As ourself. That your level of relationship with others is contingent upon your level of relationship with you. Because if you are still dealing with self-rejection, if you have rejected you, you have a dilemma. Because you, are, you take you wherever you go. And you arrive in a package that you are uncomfortable with. And if you are trying to relate with others through a package that you are uncomfortable with, they are going to be uncomfortable as well. And so we need to not only be reconciled to God, we need to be reconciled to ourself. You say, Pastor, that kind of sounds like some psychological mumbo-jumbo. Let me give you some scripture for that, okay? Way back in the book of Genesis, we see uh, in the fall, that we see that God uh, put Adam and Eve in paradise and forbid them one thing, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we know that in what theologians call the fall, Eve was enticed and Adam, out of his fidelity to his wife, and he put his wife over God, because scripture is clear, Adam was not deceived in the same sense that Eve was. Eve interacted with the enemy and Adam punked out in being the man of God he was supposed to be. And God laid a more serious responsibility at Adam's feet. Now that's a sermon for another day, probably a good Father's Day sermon, huh? It, uh, well, maybe, well, I don't know. Anyway, it, uh, so what happened was, in the lie, what, what theologians call original sin had behind it what I would call an original lie. Or really a twofold lie. There was two sides to this lie. And if you look at the enticement of the enemy before Eve, what did he say? He said, did God really say? First he questioned the word of God. 
And she affirmed, yes, God said this. And she even, she even added to the word of God and made God a little more complicated than he was, which is our human tendency. She said, we're not even to touch the tree. Now, that was probably a good idea, but God didn't say that. Eve did. She added to the word of God. And so then the enemy went for the juggler and he said, well, the reason God said this is because he's trying to keep the good stuff, the God stuff, to himself. He knows that if you partake of this fruit, you will be like him. And the insinuation, the satanic defamation of God's character was this. God can't be trusted. He's not looking out for you, so you better look out for yourself. You better take matters into your own hands, Eve. Because if you want the good stuff, if you want the God stuff, you're going to have to get it on your own. You're going to have to go around God because God is not really looking out for your good. And when Eve swallowed that lie, when she believed that lie, it became the entrance for sin. And every one of us sitting in this room, every person that's ever taken a breath, has continued to struggle with that original lie ever since. The echoes of Eden still ring in the ears of man. We struggle with that, can I trust God? And so our, our walk with the Lord is a lifelong journey of God revealing his faithfulness so that we put more faith in him. And he proves himself again and again and again. That's why it says in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God was willing to demonstrate his great love. Calvary itself was a prophetic act. It was a prophetic drama, if you will. It was a way for him to overtly express his great love for us. And that was the beginning of him revealing his, great, his faithfulness. And it's a lifelong journey of us unraveling those doubts about his character. That is the Christian walk. So that's the first lie. That's, that's the foundational lie that everybody struggles with. Can I really trust God to do right by me? I got in a conversation with someone this last week and began to talk about this whole thing of there's really three pillars to, the, to our faith in God, three primary pillars, and you can get into a whole lot of other theological discussions from there, but the three pillars are this. Number one, God is all wise. He knows what's best for you. God knows everything. He knows what's best for you. Matter of fact, I believe it was Elizabeth Elliot. She said, uh, God's will is what you would want if you knew all the facts. In other words, if God were to God were to say, I want you to draw out the ultimate plan for your life. Write what's all your wildest dreams. And then he said, but I'm going to loan you my brain. He, poof, he unloads his brain on you. And you can use my brain to figure it out, you know, because I want to give you omniscience. Your will for you would look exactly like his will for you. The problem is we're at a disadvantage because we have a very limited perspective. And we don't always believe that he really wants what's best for us and he knows what's best for us. So God is all wise. It's what theologians call omniscience. God is also all powerful. He's omnipotent. He is omnipotent. He is able to do what's best for you. He is able to move heaven and earth to get you where you need to go. So he wants what's best or he knows what's best for you and he can do it what's best for you. But here's the real key to the whole thing is he wants what's best for you. He is omni-relational. <laughs> he is love. So he knows what's best, wants what's best, and he can pull it off. And when we really believe that, when we settle down into that, that gives us an airtight faith. There's, it doesn't leak. So the enemy is always at war against one of those three truths. 
It's like the little, what, what's that thing where the little head pops up and you hit one down and the other one comes up? <laughs> love, wisdom, power, love, you know. And the enemy's always trying to uh, cause us to question one of those. And so we've got to get that nailed down. So it's our relationship with God. We need to be reconciled to God. And we understand that usually as believers that the cross was to reconcile us to God. Be ye reconciled to God, Paul said. But there was a second, even more subtle lie that also needs to be undone, and the cross is what undoes it, and that is a lie about us ourselves. Because the insinuation was God can't be trusted, and you're not good enough the way you are, Eve. It caused her to reject God, but it also caused her to reject herself. And the cross of Jesus Christ does not merely uh, merely. It, 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 it uh, reconciles us to God. That's an amazing thing. But we need to understand it also reconciles us to ourself. God loves us so we can surrender to him. And you are lovable. So you can begin to be comfortable in your own body. I, I went to a Bible school where I was taught that the guy that was the founder of the school was a tremendous man of God. But he had some issues from his own childhood that would come out later and, and cause a, a, you know international scandal. And he used to preach against self-acceptance. And I remember him making the quote. He said, he was talking to a lady and she said, I hate myself, I'm ugly. And he said, that isn't true. If you hate yourself, you'd be glad you're ugly. I'm thinking, well, that's not very pastoral of you, you know. But see, it was this mixed up thinking and I was raised up in ministry under that, so I had this idea that self-rejection was noble. That I fast, I pray, I read the word, and I beat myself up continually. And I thought, if I accept myself, that's being selfish. When in reality, until we come into self-acceptance, we can't help but be selfish. Because we're so caught up worrying about us. We live in self-consciousness because we haven't accepted us. Again, if you are uncomfortable with who you are, you have a dilemma because you bring that person with you everywhere you go. So you arrive in this package you, you've already rejected and you're trying to sell it to other people. You're trying to relate with them. So you're, you have one of two things, withdrawal, so you don't have to, because you're convinced, I don't like me and no one else will either. So you withdraw or you bring a false you to the table or at least a, a partial you is left behind the curtain. You take a part of you, those, those parts of you that you rejected, those parts that there's still shame connected to and you hide those pieces and you bring only a portion of you to the table and present it as the whole you. And therefore, you are not integrated. You, you lack integrity. It's literally what the word integrity means. I come to you with my whole heart. What you see is what you get. This is me. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But if I'm, not, if I'm suffering with self-rejection, then there's parts of me that I leave behind the scenes and I try to present something that's not true. It's not, it does, it's not authentic. And that's not good for the other people in your life, and it's certainly not good for you. And so there are a lot of people who have been reconciled to God to varying degrees. They're saved. They're born again. Heaven will be their home. But they're not able to bring heaven to earth because they're so preoccupied with 
themselves, not in a way of, not, not this arrogance that they're, they're bragging, but they're so preoccupied, they're, they're so consumed with trying to hide them that they don't have anything to give to other people. Now we're, gonna, we're about to launch another cycle of the ultimate journey. Used to be called Christ Life. And when, uh, when that was first launching, the guy who wrote it was, is a friend of mine, John Marquez. And John had this wonderful illustration of people who were unhealed. He said, it's like somebody that's in a, a swimming pool with a bunch of beach balls that they don't want anybody to see. So you're trying to keep all your beach balls under the surface, you know, and try to look like you're cool, you know. Someone waves you, hi, ooh, my beach balls are showing, you know. And it's like we got all this stuff we don't want to deal with and we're trying to keep it under and trying to look casual. It's a lot of work. And I lived there. That's, that's what drove me to alcoholism. This deep sense of self-rejection. And it was rooted in shame. We see Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve bought into the lie about God and the lie about themselves, sin came into the world. And what was the very next thing that happened? It was shame and blame. They hid from God and they began to blame one another. That shame is, a, is, is the, the big issue that you and I need to learn to deal with. We need to be able to unlock shame, begin to release ourselves from that so that we can once and for all just settle the issue. And when you come into self-acceptance, it's not that you're, it's, you, you're delivered from self-consciousness because now you can forget about you and begin to give your attention to other people. And that's the crucial thing for us to move into. And so we see, we talked last week about how Adam and Eve were in the bushes, so to speak. They're, they're hiding in the, and God comes and says, Adam, Adam, where are you? Now again, when God asks you a question, it's not so you can give him some revelation. It's for his, your insight, not his. He's a good counselor and he asks you very probing questions. If the Lord ever asks you a question, write down your answer. Because that's what he was looking for. And there's a whole lot of revelation in what you tell him when he elicits that answer from your heart. And so Adam says, we were hiding because we were naked. Or if you're from Missouri, naked. We were, we were naked. My, my kids and I have had an ongoing debate since they were little. I say it's buck naked, and they said it's butt naked. So uh, I don't know why I shared that with you. I'm just being real. Okay. How many of you agree with pastor, buck? Raise your hand. I don't even want to know who agrees with my kids. So, but Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are... Are, they said, we're naked. But here's the thing. They weren't. They had already covered themselves with their own man-made garments made of leaves. So there was a nakedness that, now I'm not saying it was good, you know, like some real nice clothes. I'm not saying it hid everything. But I'm saying that they really weren't naked. But they were still hiding. They'd already solved the physical nakedness problem. But there was, there was a deeper nakedness that they were trying to hide. There was something laid bare in their soul through sin that mere clothing could not cover. And we need to learn to deal with that. We need to get at that. That thing that tries to cover. It, it's that residue. It's... It, you can call shame residual humiliation. Shame and guilt are two different things. Guilt is feeling bad about what you have done. And guilt is sometimes legitimate and sometimes illegitimate. And the way we deal with legitimate guilt is that 
We ask forgiveness, we repent, we do, we do what needs to be done so that we can be relieved of that burden. Illegitimate guilt, we need teaching. Our, our conscience needs instruction. Paul said, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent, he said in 1 Corinthians. Conscience, literally, the word is con, with, science, knowledge, with knowledge. In other words, your your belief system will dictate what you feel guilty about. When I was first a believer, I felt guilty about everything. My conscience was what Paul called a weak conscience. But I was, and, and at that time, I needed to be there. I was, just, I was just trying to find my way in the Lord. But I wanted to keep a pure conscience before the Lord. I remember the counselors at Teen Challenge would ask me a question and then I'd answer them and then I'd go back to them. Um, I'm not sure I was honest with you. I think I was, but I might not have been because I was thinking this as well and I just wanted you to know. And they're looking at me, you're a weird kid. I'm like, you know. <laughs> I was just trying to keep a clear conscience. I wanted, I wanted to be clean before the Lord. And then as I learned certain things, there were things that used to bother me that now they don't. And some things that didn't bother me, now they do. But shame is different than all of that. Shame is feeling bad about what you are. Shame is an identity issue. Shame makes you feel like damaged goods. Repentance doesn't solve the problem of shame because shame is a lie from the enemy that keeps you stuck. It tries to identify you with your failure or your experiences, with the humiliation that you've experienced in the past. Shame is a human condition that God wants to deliver us from. Now, the ultimate root of shame is the fall, what we just talked about. That Adam and Eve, when they were cut off from God, there was something laid bare in their soul. They lived in paradise. Some theologians believe they were clothed in the glory of God. And that when they lost that, their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. However that worked, there was something I remember. I can't even talk about this without vividly remembering when I was five years old and discovered pornography. And I remember as a kid, there was this, this fascination, but also I felt like I'd just been baptized in filth. I felt dirty. And it's like I came into knowledge that I wasn't prepared for. I, it was, I, I didn't need to know those things at that age. I didn't have the, capa- the moral capacity to handle it. It was like I felt dirty. I remember going home that day and like I didn't want to see my mom. I didn't, want to, you know, I didn't want to be around my parents. It was something that my innocence had been taken. There was shame. The enemy tries to connect us with those things and make it into our identity. And we need to know how to deal with shame because shame is not God's will for your life. And so we've got to unlock. So the ultimate ultimate root of shame is the fall. But there are secondary roots of shame in our lives. And really, two primary avenues of shame for us is this, events and environments. Events, things that have happened to you. The enemy has strategized your entire existence to sabotage you with shame because he knows the diabolical nature of shame. That if he can cause shame to enter your life and you don't deal with it, he can keep you cut off from God. It doesn't mean that you're not going to heaven, but it means you won't be able to bring heaven to earth. You're not going to live up to your potential and you won't have relationships with others. He will destroy your relationships through shame. 
you'll withdraw and you'll blame. And so we need to deal with this. So the, the events, there are, there are things that happened in our life that the enemy will use to sabotage us. I was just meeting with a couple uh, the other night for marriage counseling. And, and I asked them, I said, is there any, and one of the things we always deal with in marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling is, uh, I tactlessly named this session, You Marry Their Past. That's subtle for a minute. And I tell them, there's a reason you're attracted to each other, and it's not just physical. Your stuff is attracted to their stuff, good and bad. This fallacy, this fairy tale stuff about, uh, you know, this, the little Cinderella who lives among the cinders, been abused her whole life. But she talks with the birds. You know, she needs counseling. She, Cinderella, she's riding through the woods one day. And there's Prince Charming here. Well, hello there. And he's this well-adjusted, wealthy young prince. And they fall in love and live happily ever. That is, there's a reason it's called a fairy tale, okay? Because you are attracted to your level of emotional health. Your relationships are a mirror of your emotional, relational health. There are certain people you're uncomfortable around. It may be that you're looking and saying, whoa, I, I don't, you know, I'm not judging them, but it just, we just don't seem to match. It's like, and, and you feel like there's something going on there that just doesn't fit right. And you're thinking they're dysfunctional. Well, it might be the other way around. <laughs> And usually it isn't some conscious thing. Like we go out there, oh, dysfunction. You know, it's sort of, oh, there's a lack of dysfunction. It's usually, it's more, it, it, just, it just happens. We're, we find our rhythm in life and we, we are attracted to certain people and we click. And what we don't realize is there are shared experiences, shared perceptions of ourselves and others that we run with. Remember years ago, a guy, Bill Gothard, he used to have this huge ministry teaching basic youth conflicts. And he used to say this, and, and that was my experience. He said, you can get 5,000 teenagers in a room, and if there's two of them that are rebellious, within a half hour, they'll find each other in the bathroom. And they'll be hanging out the rest of the week. What is it? It's... <laughs> it's that perception that we have, we pick up on dysfunction and, and those kind of things. There's, we gravitate in that way. And so the fact is that we are going to be attracted to our level of emotional health. And we have these shared experiences. So I, I used to tell guys at Teen Challenge when I worked, I'd say, listen, the best thing you can do before you even think of dating, let alone get married, is get healthy. Get whole. The healthier you are, the healthier things you'll be attracted to and the healthier things will be attracted to you. And so we've got to deal with our stuff. And those events sabotage us and they cause shame in our life. 
I don't, Kathy and I, when we got married, I, I got delivered. Man, when I, when, I, when I got saved, I was a homeless alcoholic. I mean, God delivered. I still drank a little after I got saved, but as soon as I got into Teen Challenge, that thing was gone, and then it was all the, other, the underlying roots of that. You know, the fruit, alcoholism, drugs, all that stuff fell off. But I was then dealing with the roots. And one of the roots of my behavior was this this violent kind of go out and get in a fight, pick fights all the time. And that, I was delivered of that. Man, I was, uh, God d- totally delivered me until I got married. <laughs> now you think I'm going to go, that my wife and I would argue. I mean, some of that happened and, and uh, well, I won't even go there. But uh, <laughs> it, that's usually the point at which I joke about how my wife must have had some issues because I wasn't an angry person until I married her. But anyway... <laughs> Okay, okay. Whoa, man, did you feel that? Ichabod. Let's, let's pray the Lord back in the room. No, seriously, I, I, there, was, there was something that began to happen in my life after we got married, and we started having kids. We, we were married a year, and we got pregnant with that little boy on the front row here, that, you know, our little baby. And uh, then eight and a half months later, we had twins. That's right. You heard me right. We had three children in eight and a half months. A year later, we had another one. So we had like, what? Three ki- four kids under like two and a half or something like that. It was crazy. And this thing started coming up in me. We'd be driving down the road. Here I am. I'm a minister, okay? And I've got, I'm in a van full of car seats and little babies. My little godly wife sitting there and we're driving down the road and we'd pull up to a, a stop sign and a guy would look at me. And you got, ladies, you won't understand this, but guys, you'll understand. He'd give me the look, you know? Like, you want some of that? And I'd look back, you want some of this? <laughs> and then I'd catch myself. And then I'd try to give the universal sign of male affirmation. I'd put my eyebrows up and kind of hunt, you know, wave. <laughs> like, what is that? What is that? So I'm kind of giving mixed signals. The guy's thinking, is he trying to be friendly? Is, or is he trying to pick a fight? And I'm, you know, I have all this conflict in me. And I began to ask the Lord about it. Seriously, I was, because I was working at Teen Challenge and there was all these guys at Teen Challenge. They, you know, they were gangbangers and, you know, guys that came out of violent backgrounds. And so they were all insecure and had chips on their shoulders. And so everybody's going in line at lunchtime staring at each other. You want some of this? You want some of this? You know, that was a lot of work, you know, just to go to lunch. And, we're like, and I'm supposed to be a staff member. So I'm supposed to be given that universal sign. Affirming everybody, and I'd find myself eyebrows going up and down, and I'm like, God, what? And uh, so I'm asking the Lord, I'm saying, God, what is this? And I seriously, I began to really ask the Lord because it was it was troubling me. And there were certain guys I feared the Lord enough that I'm not, I wouldn't going to use my position in Teen Challenge to crush their their ego. But it was provoking mine. And so I would just have to avoid those students. I'm like, God, what is this? You got to understand, when I got saved, I was 135 pounds, and probably 10 pounds of that was hair, okay? So, I mean, I was not a big dude, okay? So it wasn't, it wasn't even smart for me to try to be a tough guy, you know, let alone godly. And uh, so I'm, I'm crying out to God about this. And one day I was in a service. We were over in Omaha, and uh, there was a guy, it was, it was a concert, and Dennis Jernigan, anybody know Dennis Jernigan? He was leading worship. Phenomenal. And he's, I, I'm sitting there with my buddy, Daryl Mayfield, Bubba, 
old Daryl. And uh, Dennis is playing the piano, and he said, the Lord has told me that some of you, I'm, I'm supposed to sing this song over you, and he's going to heal your hearts. And he just has this real inner healing thing on his music. And so he said, so if you need healing, inner healing, I want you to stand right now if your heart is wounded. And so I thought, I'm not, or I would, but since I'm not, I won't, and I'll pray for those who are. And Daryl stood up. So I'm praying for Daryl. And the Lord had the audacity in the midst of my prayer for Daryl's wounded heart to take me into a vision and show me my own. Now, let me pause. During this time, I had bought some black cowboy boots and a black leather jacket. And I'd wear a lot of black t-shirts. And my wife didn't like it. She was like, you know, she didn't like my cowboy boots. But I, there was this thing. And I kept feeling like the Lord said, put those boots away. So I'd take them off, put them in the closet. And, oh, that isn't God. I'd put them back. Lord said, I don't want you to wear those. I'd take them off, put them in the closet. And, oh, I'll do this. That's not God. And I kept feeling like the Lord said, don't wear those boots. And I thought, what in the world is that about? So I'm in this service. And here's what happened. I'm, I'm sitting in that service praying for Daryl because he's the wounded one, not me. And as I'm praying for him, all of a sudden, I, I was in a parking lot from when I was 16. I was about 16. And I had gotten in a fight with a guy a, probably a year earlier, and I had him down on the ground, and I was the only one there. And his buddy came up and started punching me on the head, so that wasn't good. And a friend of mine, this girl, pulls up, and I jumped in the car, and we left, and I thought, hey, I'm going to get him. <laughs> you know, only it was probably at a higher pitch and much less girls. <laughs> And uh, so anyway, uh, so I saw him one night, and I call him out of, the, of McDonald's. Hey, yeah, you want some of this? Come on out there. And he comes out, and he starts yelling, yeah, doing the Tasmanian devil. We were both all talk, you know. <laughs> and I back down in front of all my friends. Now... I was probably at the time 28 years old. So it's been about 12 years. Now it's been like 14. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, I was, I was in that scene and there I was. And I, I was having a conversation with the Lord. But I mean, I was in that McDonald's parking lot in Atumwaiwa. And I said, Lord, what is this? And all of a sudden, in big words, imposed over that vision it said humiliation and I remember how utterly humiliating that was and what was going on in my relationship with these guys was that their ego was provoking that woundedness in me and rather than doing what a man of God should do and humble myself and minister to the need that they really had it was provoking this thing in me that wanted to try to be something I was never created to be. I wasn't even created to be that physically, let alone spiritually. And in that vision, all of a sudden, the Lord was standing there in that parking lot. And he was just looking at me. And it, I, I'm telling you, as, as, some of you guys can probably relate with, as a 16-year-old kid calling a guy out, and then backing down in front of all your friends, especially the kind of guys I ran around with, you don't do that. It was so humiliating. And as I'm standing there in the midst of that shame and that humiliation, 
the Lord was looking at me and he just absolutely loved me and accepted me. It went right through me. I mean, it was, I was absolutely loved and accepted. And it changed how I saw that situation. I can't go back and change my past, but I can get a greater perspective on it by bringing God's perspective in. And something happened in me. I don't know how long it was. It was a few minutes, but I was gone in that parking lot and the Lord was loving me. And all of a sudden, I was back there, sitting there praying for Daryl, and the Lord spoke this to me. You can wear your cowboy boots now. And I had no desire to. Because the reason, it wasn't that the cowboy boots were wrong. It was the reason I was wearing them. I was accommodating some brokenness within my soul. And that event brought tremendous humiliation. And I was living out of the humiliation. That residual humiliation caused shame. It was like a... I felt like I had to turn in my man card, so I was overcompensating and trying to be something I wasn't. And God had to heal something in me. We all have our events in our life. And we need to allow the Lord to show us what those are and unlock those things. Because after that, something I was a different person coming out of that. I, I've, I don't think I've ever been tempted to throw down with a guy in a, at a... Uh, red light ever since. Something changed in me. But there's also environments. And now these environments are even more tricky than the events. Because environments are like these. What I mean by that is some of you, your home of origin was a shame-based family system. The way you flowed with each other, the way you related with each other, your perspective on your family is shame-based. I remember years ago when I was leading a Christ Life group and Christopher and Beth were living in Chattanooga and I was sitting with the guys in Teen Challenge and I said to them, I said, okay, uh, I want you to think of your family and put your family name in this sentence. The Olson family is, and then just fill in the blank. And so I'm just telling them this because this is for them. I'm not the wounded one. They are. And as I did that, this is what came to mind. The Olson family, and this is what I thought. The Olson family, they're nice people. They try hard, but they'll never really become much in life. And I was kind of, whoa, that was a little personal. Uh, this group is over. I was shocked at what I felt. So I called Christopher. I said, Christopher. And I told him what I said. I said, what do you think of that phrase? He said, oh, that's us. See, we were raised in the same home. And that was our perspective. It was an environment. Man, I was raised in a home by parents who loved me. Nurture. I was told, I, you know, I, I, I was loved by my mom and dad. Kiss goodnight. And, uh, a very, very loving environment. But there was this, this residue my mom and dad were dealing with that I inherited. I was raised in that. And the fact is, what we don't question about our home of origin, we are destined to repeat. And so what God does is he'll go into a family, redeem a generation, and he'll peel back layers, and he's going to take the next generation farther, and the next generation farther, and we're going from glory to glory, and he's redeeming the family name. 
Last weekend, I was, I'm going to have Amanda Watts come up in just a few moments and share something. But last weekend, I was praying for her. And when I was praying for her at the altar, I saw like a mantle, or it was like on a wall, I saw a coat of arms from a family. And it was like, it was dirty. It was, it was buried under all this stuff. And it was like it was being cleaned off and then it was gleaming. And I saw generations of her family standing around saying, that's our family. There was this pride, this feeling of, that's our family. And I saw some things in the past that had happened and that the enemy had sabotaged generations and then tried to define the whole family by those generational failures and those generational wounds and those generational sins. And we, we take those on and it becomes almost like a, a blueprint by which we navigate life. It becomes our roadmap because this is who we are. And my believing determines my behaving. And if I'm never really going to amount to much, then that's who I am. And these, it, it creates these lids on our life. And keeps us from the works that God hath prepared in advance that we should walk in them. That's why we were talking a couple of weeks ago. There are works prepared in advance that I should walk in them. But I've got to be prepared in advance so I'm the person that can walk with them when I arrive to my future date. And I'm confronted with those opportunities. And there may be works prepared in advance, but if I'm not allowing the Lord to deal with me, then I can arrive to my future unprepared. I'm still the past me. Now, what you are today may be perfectly fine for the, the, the promised land that you're living on, you're tilling the ground of right now, but there's more for your future, so you've always got to be growing because the you that is here today is not sufficient for the you that's going to be next year because God has more for you. And you've got to deal with those mindsets and those belief systems. And we've got to deal with these events that have caused wounds in our life that cause us to identify in such a way that's unhealthy. So we're not really seeing ourselves as that person in the future. If we're not identifying with the person God created us to be, you put it this way, humility. I don't know who said this. It wasn't me. I wish it was. <laughs> I'm about to. But I was, it is an original. Humility is nothing more and nothing less than agreeing with what God says about you. And pride is disagreeing with what God says about you. Now, you may say, oh, but God thinks more of me than I, I think less. That's not pride. Yeah, it is. Because you've put your assessment above his. And you're still preoccupied with you. I remember when I first began to preach, I've been preaching over 30 years. When I first began to preach, I would say, yeah, that wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> I'd, I'd beat myself up. But what I was really wanting is someone to affirm what I just did. Because I was struggling with my view of myself. And it looked like humility, but it was actually pride because I was self-absorbed. It was all about me. What did you think of it? I, I wouldn't have said that. I'd say, that wasn't very good, was it? Yeah. Pause. You know? And if they didn't say anything, what? Well, that was proof it was pride to come. Wait, wait a minute. Or if they agreed with me, yeah, I agree. <laughs> and so God wants to heal our hearts. Some of you were raised in an environment of shame. And it was literally the environment in which you lived. And so it's more elusive. It's harder to deal with because you can't point back to an event 
of trauma, some event of humiliation, some, some event where there was some horror or unmet hunger. But it's just the environment. It was the way you viewed yourself, the way your family viewed you. There, there, are whole, there are whole countries that live under these clouds. And then there are those in those countries that break out of that. They don't view themselves in that way. There are, there are whole races that tend to live under that in certain settings. And there's, there's families that live under that. And then there's those who break free from that by interacting with the word of God. But we've got to confront these things and we need the wisdom of God to open up the eyes of our understanding and show us, Lord, what are the limitations I'm living under? Not, again, not for some ego thing where I want to be great so I can, be, you know, so it's all about me. No, I want to live up, I want to see God's desires for my life realized that he can receive the glory due his name. I don't want to leave anything on the table. When I stand before him, I want to be able to say, God, I went after everything you had for me. I, I expressed everything you put within me. And what keeps us from doing that are those wrong beliefs about ourselves and about God. And then that will keep us from the relationships that will get you to where you need to go. We touched on this a few weeks ago, but I'm telling you, the, your future opportunities are connected to relationships. God will bring new relationships into your life to open doors for you. It's who you know in the kingdom. You get into the kingdom by who you know, Jesus. And God will put people in your life, not in, again, not in some manipulative way where you're trying to manipulate people and use them. I'm just telling you that relationship is the way the kingdom works. But if you have a view of yourself that you can't be around those people, then you cut yourself off from those opportunities. It's so like we were talking a few weeks ago, every fresh opportunity will stir old insecurities. It's an opportunity for you to deal with your stuff in a deeper way and to grow into all that God has for you. But every time there's a new opportunity, there's going to be an old insecurity. Often that you thought, oh, I thought I dealt with that. You did to a various degrees. And God will bring new people into your life. You can't steward those relationships. You can't have a healthy we until you have a healthy view of your me. <laughs> You've got to be healed in how you see God, how you see yourself, and then you can have those healthy relationships. And your destiny is connected to the tribe, your, your promised land. The promised land was delegated or, or you know, allotted out through tribe tribal affiliation, and you can't run with your tribe, the people you were called to, until you see yourself differently. You've got to grow up. You've got to grow past these things. And so we need the wisdom of God. Lord, help me to see the environments that I lived in. I, I used to, I, I really struggled. I thought I was, I just, you know, I, I was a solid D student all through school. Solid D student. Until I got saved, but that was after high school. I did graduate. They probably did. They, I don't think I really did. I think they just didn't want me back. Uh, I mean, I, I think, I seriously, I think that I got, I was a solid D student. Then when I went to Bible school, I got on the dean's list and stuff because I, I was enjoying that. You know, I, but I had this mindset that I'm just not a real intelligent person. And I had to deal with that. I had to confront those lies. 
We all have issues in our life where we see ourselves other than what God says, and we got to confront those. And as you do, then you can begin to break into your future. Now, the environmental element is tied to our families and our history and often tragedy that goes back generations. You know, there are, there are situations where it, it's not uncommon for a, a girl, maybe she hits 25 years old and all of a sudden she begins to have anxiety and even, even have dreams about being sexually molested only to find out that her mother was sexually molested at the age of 25. There is a, a relational uh, connection, even at a, at a psychological level, that we do not understand. That there is not only the sins of the forefathers, but there's also trauma and mindsets and all that stuff bleeds forward into the future. And we've got to be able to turn around and deal with those things. I was just reading this morning, and I just love this passage. Let me try to land this, and I'm going to have Amanda come up. Second Samuel, I think it's verse or chapter 23, it's the second to the last chapter. David, he's writing his own obituary. King David. I love this. And it says, These are the last words of David, son of Jesse, the one whom the Lord chose. He said, Is not my home, my family, my household? right with God. Goes through a bunch of stuff and then it says, and it should have stopped there. I mean, that was the end of David's life. But then it says, and these were the mighty men of David. It's kind of like when you have an obituary and they say, you know, Dave, Dave left behind, you know, 73 children, 40, you know, 4,300 grandchildren and, and uh, they name all the kids. That was David's legacy. His sons in the faith were the mighty men. The giant killer, the lion killer, raised up giant killers and lion killers. And the last name mentioned is Uriah the Hittite. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, that was his wife, wife Bathsheba's first husband, And David had an affair with Bathsheba and then had Uriah, one of his mighty men who was so committed to his king, he had him killed in battle so he could take his wife. And he's still listed among the mighty men of David. It's an amazing epitaph for David. It starts there and it says, David, son of Jesse, That alone, Jesse wouldn't own David, but David would own Jesse. When the prophet came to town, everyone was invited to the meal except for David. Why? Many theologians, and I agree with them, believe that David was the result of an an adulterous relationship that his father Jesse had. When David said, in sin I was conceived, some people, oh yeah, that, he's talking about we're all conceived in sin. I don't believe that's what he's saying. Literally, he was conceived in an act of sin. 
Matter of fact, there's two different lineages of David's, David's brothers that are listed in two different places. And if you got a prophet like Samuel coming to town, the last thing you want walking around your living room in front of him is the reminder of your adulterous relationship. So he leaves David out on the back 40. But it was David that would go on to pen these words. God sets the lonely in families. He's a father to the fatherless. It's really an interesting verse. I wish we had time to get into that. It's a passage about God entering into the battle and destroying his enemies. And in the midst of this, God, let God arise and he's going to crush his enemies. All of a sudden it says, and God is a father to the fatherless, a protector of the widow and the orphan. He sets the lonely in families and sets the prisoner into prosperity. But the rebellious soul, he'll put in a dry and a parched land. Then he gets back to the battle. Isn't that interesting? Because that has everything to do with what David's going after. David can't have confidence in God, but for that truth that God revealed him. It was David that had the revelation of God being a father to the fatherless. David found his salve in in his relationship with God instead of becoming bitter against his father for leaving him out. And at the end of his life, David has redeemed the line of Jesse. Now it is the line that the Messiah is going to come through. David takes the whole lineage and lifts up that whole family. And then at the end of his life, his dad's now gone. But David says, David, the son of Jesse. And he brings blessing and honor to his father's name and lifts it up. David didn't let that environment or that event define him. He didn't live in shame. And even more so, he reaches into his future and he lists Uriah the Hittite. David so broke into forgiveness, so conquered shame in his life that he could make this bold statement, is not my household right with God? And name Uriah the Hittite that he had murdered in that same passage and not blink an eye. And it's not because David had a hard heart. It was because he was really free. Every one of us, God is out to redeem our family. Amanda, come on up here. God is out to redeem our family name. And you are the one that God has assigned to take the brokenness of your past, even your own personal failures, and wash them so that you don't hide them anymore. Matter of fact, they become part of your story. They become part of your testimony. It's a way for you to give the enemy a black eye. I had a guy that was mentoring me one time. He said, Dave, don't you feel guilty about what you did as a teenager? I'm thinking, wow, should I? It's like, I don't know. I want you to disciple me anymore. I said, no, I'm not that person anymore. God wants to free us completely. And he wants to use you to lift your family name. Go ahead and just share what you shared with me last week. So Pastor shared a part, a small part of what he saw over me last Sunday when he was ministering to me. And um, I grabbed him and I said, you have to know how accurate that word was. Um, So I don't know which part to tell first. But um, so my family has this story of Mary Alice who was five generations ago. And she was my great-great-grandmother. And she became pregnant at 14 by a married man and went to her father to tell him. And he held a gun to her head and made her leave. Mm. 
and promised to never come back. And we passed her story down because when she died, she owned businesses and a hotel and bars and all kinds of stuff. And so it's this like story of pride, but with all this heartache attached to it. And so this summer, um, we put our house up for sale. Pause one minute. So what I saw when I was praying for is I saw in the generations, there was these, I saw these covenantal promises broke and just woundedness. And, and it's like it was coming up through the generations. And I felt like it's being broken off now. You guys are the generation. They're going to break all that off. The good from the generation is going to come, but all that stuff is done. There's, it stops yeah. now. You guys are the restoration generation. And then I saw those coat of arms being cleaned. Hallelujah. Yeah. So uh, we put our house up for sale. It sold pretty quickly. And we found something the same day that we got an offer on our house. And um, we know that, you know, we prayed, you know, we did all the right things. And um, two days before we were supposed to move, the house, the banks didn't like the inspection on the house and the sale fell through. Not on our house, on the house that we were going to buy. So we had two days to figure out where we were going to live. And we just, we went to our bedroom, my husband, Joe and I, and we just were like, Lord, we're just going to trust you through this. We know that this is because you have something better. And we wanted land. We wanted, um, our dream was at least five acres. And we knew we were kind of settling on this house that only had two acres. And so, you know, we're like, it's obviously because you have something better. And so we end up moving in with my mom. And it's just going to be short term. And so we find another house. And this time it's in uh, a different city. And we put an offer in and she accepted it. And, um, there was some work that she had to do to it before the bank would close on the loan. And so we waited and we waited and she still hadn't done it, hadn't done it. And so the whole summer has gone by almost now. It's like August. We sold our house June 7th. And um, so, sorry, I'm trying to tell the short version. And um, she decided to walk away from the sale on the house. She didn't want to do the work. And so my husband and I cry out and we're like, Lord, what is happening now? We've lost two houses. We're living in a bedroom with our two children <laughs> with our mattresses on the floor. What is going on? And he said, you keep trying to settle for the Ishmael. I'm trying to give you my best. Mm. And so we're like, okay, we don't care how long we have to live in this bedroom with mattresses <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> we don't care. And within seven days, uh, one of our friends sent us a house. And I'm like, I'm not looking at any houses. I'm waiting for God's best. I don't care how long this takes. And so, but my husband, it was eight acres. So it was even more wow. than we wanted. Yeah. Awesome. And it was moving ready. We didn't have to do anything to it. And we just fell in love with it as soon as we saw it. And we just knew that it was God. And so we put in the bid. And we weren't the only ones who put an offer in. They chose our offer because we knew the Lord. Is what he told us. Huh. And, uh. So we're like two weeks out from closing, you know, and we're like, oh God, you know, like the <laughs> And my mom said to me, that's so weird that you found this house in Truro. Did you know that Mary Alice was from Truro? Five generations. So I knew her story, but I never knew where she was from. And so five generations ago, she left in shame from mm. Truro. Mm. Mm. And God has put us back. We don't know why yet, but we know that God is doing all of this. So. Yeah.
Hallelujah. Yeah. So the word that you gave me was already a lot of what God had been talking to me about. And what it did was it um, validated that what the Lord was saying to me wasn't something that I had manufactured. It wasn't my agenda, that this is his agenda to yeah. redeem this five generations ago. Yeah. And to um, redeem Mary Alice. So, yeah. yeah. And the beautiful thing is that my mom is named after her. And so I'm Mary Alice's daughter five generations yeah. later. So. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Tell you what, this is what we're going to do. I want anybody that's related to her, come up here real quick. We're going to close the service praying over you. We want to pray for this family. This is a prophetic sign. God wants to redeem families. There are legacies that have lied dormant in some of your families for generations. It's, there, there's things that God wanted to do in your grandfathers, your grandmothers, your great-grandfathers, great, your parents. There's things God wants to release through your children. But we're the generation. We are the hinge upon which it swings. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I want you just to extend your right hand towards these. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for this household. And Lord, I thank you for Mary Alice. Lord, I thank you for the destiny that you had for her that still is out there for the taking, that unclaimed mantle. Lord, I thank you that you're going to allow it to land in this generation, Lord. Father, I thank you for restoration in the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask for every every square inch of promised land. Lord, every cent. Lord, every word of your destiny for this family to be fulfilled. In the name of Jesus, we declare it. We declare restoration. Lord, I thank you that just as David elevated Jesse's name once again, a father who had conceived him in shame, became affiliated with the name of a king. Hallelujah. Lord, we pray the same for this household. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. You're welcome. Bless you guys. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Just lift your hands. Lord, we thank you. God, you are good. And Lord, I ask God that you would help us, each one of us, Lord, to have insight into the things that are holding us back, Lord, declare war over them in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.